Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And uh, tonight I think we have some very interesting things, very different types of topics. Someone asked me to speak about Kellogg's. We'll mention that briefly. And I was uh, interested in talking about something that's going into the magazine. I just became aware of it last week. And I was very surprised. I, I must have missed it last year when it came out in one publication, but you, you can't watch everything. And uh, now it's a very interesting topic. It's a question about using the hindquarters uh, of, of beef to make such things as kosher, um, you know, kosher uh, uh, filet mignon, for kosher sirloin steaks and T-bone steaks, etc. So we're going to be discussing that. And then, Hashem, I have something about Shaduchim, which I just got today. I haven't had a chance to read it. It's a 216-page book, all in Hebrew. So you got to give me some time. But I think it's a wonderful uh, sefer that uh, the gentleman, Rafi Newman, was writing. He has a, an organization called Yismach.com, Y-I-S-M-A-C-H.com. And we're going to be discussing that right after I deal with the other two issues that are more cautious-related. The, the the wonderful thing about that book, and you're gonna, I'm gonna send it to anybody who wants it. We, it doesn't cost uh, anything. It's it, it hasn't been printed yet. It's called the draft, and I don't think he uh, cares that other people read it. So I'm I'm going to send it over to anybody who sends me an email. You just send me an email at kashrus k a s h r u s at aol dot com, and type in the word. Um, Shidduch, Shidduchim. Okay, if you tap in the word Shidduchim, I'm going to send you this document. 216 pages, but it's all in Hebrew. Not a word of English except his name. <laughs> so you'll know who wrote it, but if you can't read Hebrew, forget it. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Now, the topics that I wanted to take up first is the union of Kellogg's. Can I just see that thing a second? Because I, you have it on you? I don't. I haven't even seen it directly. Somebody just showed it to me here in the in the studio, but I heard about it, and it's the funniest thing in the world. Like, people just discovered America. They, Kellogg's is the oldest company making uh, dry cereals in this whole country, and uh, and they're under Hashkocha from the KVH, which I wrote about a story about them in my last issue, and KVH is doing a good job over there in Kellogg's, and all the cautious agencies that I know of accept the products, Look, if you makpid on Chalv Yisrael, then you're not going to use the dairy products. But the other ones, you could people do use. And if you have certain hakpadis, okay, fine, but, you, but you're talking about a regular responsible shkacha. So it seems that this letter got completely taken out of, uh, taken out of its meaning, and, and people were saying lush and horror about the whole shkacha. It, it was a very funny thing that, that, that's, that people should be so silly. I've written about this not more than a few months ago, I mentioned specifically about which Kellogg's cereals are affect are affected by this issue of the gelatin. It's true that some of the products are not kosher. Obviously, they don't have the K for the KVH. They don't. Uh, the KVH gives out a letter of certification. It's never been on that letter. There's no mistakes here. It's just that people don't know anything, and they go ahead and uh, blast somebody for no reason. So let me read the letter to you. It says, thank you for inquiry regarding the type of gelatin used in Kellogg's special 
channels, uh, products. The type of gelatin currently used in our products is outlined below. Product information is subject to change. Pork gelatin is used in Kellogg's Disney frozen cereal, and it is uh, and, and, and in all varieties of Kellogg's Rice Krispie Treats. The treats is the one that has the marshmallows in it, including Kellogg's Rice Krispie Treats made with whole grain bars. Beef gelatin is used in Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts has never been under the KVH, and it, it doesn't have a hashkoch at all. And if they found a hashkoch for some of the products, I don't know, but they, it's definitely not under the KVH. never has been. In 30, 40 years, it hasn't been under them. Because, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, because the gelatin is used in the icing are unfrosted varieties not contain any gelatin. However, it should be noted that they are not certified kosher. So none of the Pop-Tarts are certified kosher. So that, that, that's a no-brainer. We're talking cereals. Beef gelatin is also used in Kellogg's Frosted Mini Wheats cereal, Kellogg's Mini Wheat Little Bites cereal, and Kellogg's Rice Krispie Treats cereal. And that's what was in my magazine article not more than about two three months ago. Uh, beef or pork gelatin may be used in Kellogg's fruit-flavored snacks. Now, their fruit-flavored snacks are not cereals. We, in other words, that's like a, 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 a fruit, a, a gummy bear. Okay? So that, in other words, what everybody was talking about was because they didn't understand that Kellogg's products that have a K, the KVH, uh, are certified kosher properly. And the other ones, it's up to you. Now, this does raise one question, which I think everybody should start thinking more about. And that is, am I buying a product that the company is kosher? Or am I buying a kosher product from a company that is sometimes kosher and sometimes not kosher? And I think you should be, you, you might be surprised at the number of companies that are not all kosher. I'll give you a simple example. I get a call from one of the cashless agencies. Rabbi Wickler, please help us out over here. It seems that in the store, they're putting the name of the distributor on repackaged products. So they have, let's say, candies in a little plastic, and it says that this comes from this company, and they mistakenly put on it that it's, you know, under the hashkocha of, because that's the hashkocha that that company uses. And the thing is treif. So what happens? Because that company distributes that product. It's not their brand name, but they sell it. And it's not kosher. And this has been going on forever. Back 30 years ago, I would say more, but I'm, scared, I'm afraid you're going to think I'm 99. But it's more than 30 years. In the middle of Borough Park, and I mean the middle of Borough Park. I don't care how you slice Borough Park. This is the middle. If you tell you the street, you'd say, that's the middle. <laughs> In the middle of Borough Park, the biggest supermarket of that era, I walk in, and they're selling, for Pesach, marshmallows, with words kosher gelatin on it, which everybody knew in those days in the 1980s, everybody knew that the kosher gelatin was from, um, the kosher gelatin was from animals that were not kosher certified. 
not not kosher slaughtered, no shechita. They were from uh, from animals could be from pigs, could be from uh, kosher type animals, but not it wasn't a kosher company. I said kosher gelatin because some rabbi said that since it's not really the actual meat, it's only from the skins, it's only from the bones, so they felt it was all right based upon a tshuva from Chaim Ozegosinski, which is a real tshuva. But but nobody in, in Akashas was doing it except a few people want to make a lot of money who didn't do Akashas that we considered to be acceptable at all. And here they're selling in the middle of the bar park. So I go to them, what are you, what are you selling this for? And then first of all, you probably can't sell it because no one wants to buy it. And secondly, what are you putting it out for? They said to me, we have to. Why? The distributor that sells us our kosher products said that we must put this out because he's represent, he sells that. And for him, he's got to come back to the, uh, to the, uh, st- the company that puts it out and say, I did a full distribution. And he can't just put it into some stores. He's got to put it into every store. And we are res- we're required to take it in even if none sell, but we require to take it in and put it out in our store, or we're going to lose him as, a, as our distributor. That's what was done here in the middle of Borough Park. It's scandalous. Pushing, they were pushing non-kosher products on the people in the middle of Borough Park. Now, what everybody should understand that businesses are distributions. That most of the businesses that you know by a brand name don't own anything. They only own the name. And they go to a company and say, please make something. Uh, I like your product. My kosher rabbi says it's okay. And uh, he'll put his stamp on it. Or we'll take the stamp from the rabbi that certifies your company. And I'm buying from you. And then at the same time, we could buy from a non-kosher one and put our name on that too. And that's why in the Pathmarks and all those supermarkets you have in their booklets, they have the the K on this and the the OU on that and this and that. And all the same name brand product. And they're selling it with with this, with with not kosher, kosher, this kosher, better kosher, less kosher. It's it's la yehudim. And that's, that's business today. And people have to just wake up and realize it. Kellogg's didn't promise you to be kosher. All you, only communication you have is through the symbols of the kosher agencies and their list of recommended their products that they certify, which are on their website. That's how you communicate. You want to get a list in writing? Maybe they'll send it to you. But you, the only way for you to know is to bounce off that list. Now, some of the kosher agencies, like the COR in Canada, are very, very careful, and they put some numbers next to their name, COR. And they put eight nine six. That means that the that the eight nine six represents a specific manufacturing plant, and for that they can tell right away if that's their certification or not. Whether this product was made over there, and everything should should jibe. We know it's a legitimate label. So that's the way you know some of the cashless agencies work. But you, only thing most people have is just the symbol on the product. And, of course, the agency will inform you if they find out that the product was misused and put a symbol on without the permission, etc. But, really, you can have the same name product, exactly the same name, looking exactly the same, kosher and treif, this hashgach and that hashgach. We mentioned in the magazine, very recently, one of the biggest companies, Bimbo. You never heard of it, 
Well, Bimbo makes bread and maybe other baked goods. Bumbo is a huge company which owns many, many, many bakeries across the country and across the world, not just in the United States. And Bimbo makes the name brands that people know, Arnold's, Fry Hoppers, other breads like that. There is no Fry Hoppers. There is no, there is no uh, Arnold's. It's Arnold's is a distribution of product that's made by Bimbo. And Bimbo makes it in places that have OU, places that have Cuff K, and places that are trafe. And a package could have an OU on it, and the same exact product next to it would not have an OU. Oh, they forgot to put the OU on. Very interesting. No, it's not kosher. It's made in a different plant, which means every time you buy a national brand, you have to check for that. But a company like Kemach, I'm just taking a name, Mealmart, just taking names, any one of those num- companies that you know are Hamish, Kedem, you don't have to look for, see if it's kosher because he's not going to sell anything but kosher. He has to go and get his labels on products and then buy those products, put them in his storehouse, and sell it to you. So, he, the from man who is selling you the from product, he's only going to sell you a kosher product. You're never going to have to check the label to find out if it's kosher. Are you kidding me? But you take a national company, you will never know. It could be Trafe, and it could, and and and, and all of us. Oh, I didn't realize there's no OU on it. Oh, oh, they just must have taken it off. I had this person call me up here. In I couldn't believe it. He's calling me up about uh, what which company I mentioned a few weeks ago. Um, a famous company that makes uh, cookies, Entenmann's. Entenmann's, he says, do you know what? Entenmann's is not kosher anymore. I said, excuse me, Entenmann's was never completely kosher. What are you talking about? It was always under the OU at this. I said, no, it wasn't. Your store was carrying the kosher product because you live in a from neighborhood and they wanted to sell it to you. But if you're bought in a regular supermarket, you're going to be buying trafe. You mean it? Yes. And you should have been checking the label all the time because they don't owe you anything. Because that's 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 business. It's not kosher. It's business. A kosher company that was do, dealing with a with a from clientele, from owner, that was, they're only going to buy products and have it properly kosher certified. They're not going to sell you anything else. You probably will never get a mislabel on that. You might get a mislabel part of a dairy. You may get something interesting that happens occasionally, but you're not going to get that kind of a situation occurring. The thing you saw with the Kellogg's, that's a national company. It's not going to happen with the Hamisher brand. So just, just that's an additional plus of why some people buy Hamisher brands. Anyway, that's Kellogg's. I see I spent more time than I thought I was going to do on that. It leads me to this, this interesting question, which I really, I've been, I've been occupying myself with this issue for the last few days. It seems that there's a hashkacha in New York that uh, he 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 uh, he is he's a Sephardic rabbi, and his his hashkacha is a Sephardic hashkacha, and he is certifying a company that makes uh, that shrita after shrita. I'm sorry, they're processing the hindquarter. Now, the hindquarter 
Every animal has four quarters and hindquarters. Quarter is a quarter, right? There's two hindquarters and two forequarters. Four means F-O-R-E, beginning, front. Everything you've been eating, except for these little, these, this, this fellow's hashkacha, uh, everything you've been eating is from the forequarter. Everything, the steaks and the, the, the and uh, everything, every part of it. Every part of it and the meat that you're eating is from the forequarter of an animal. The only time you could get hindquarters with a regular hashkacha on it that everybody heard of is venison. Because the OU, back somewhere, I don't know the date, I'm just guessing the 1990s, but I could be wrong. They decided to do certification of venison, which means deer and stuff like that, because there are some restaurants in Manhattan that are very high class, very expensive. They're going to charge $100, $150 for a meal. And people, when they're eating, paying $150 for a meal, a couple of drinks, a couple of this, a nice dessert, they want to have a meat that they can tell everybody they ate. Whether it tastes good or it doesn't taste good, they want to tell everybody that they had something that nobody else had in their block, and that then and no one in their shul had it, and that's why. And they'll they'll pay a lot of money, and so they they're asking for venison. They know it could be made kosher, so the companies started to do venison. But venison is not a big animal. Deer is not a big. I mean, it's big, but it's not it's not as, it's not as fat as a cow, and in any way, there's not that much from the front, and yet, and it's cost a fortune, and doing it is not like a mass production the way it is in, in some of these other facilities. So it really was becoming quite expensive. And the only way it warranted handling by these people is if we can get the front and the back. So they went to the OU, and the OU said, let's look into it. And Rabbi Belsky, Zatzal, was there. And Rabbi Belsky is an expert. He was an expert in, not just in, that he knew Nikur, because he, he was an expert in everything. The man knew how the physical things he knew how to do perfectly. He was, uh, he was a very adept at every single part of that, knowing every single part of the anatomy of the animal. I saw him dissect what we call a Ben Pakua, which is a, a stillborn, a small animal. I saw him do it twice. And each time... He didn't just say the uh, the name in Hebrew in the Gemara Lushen. He would tell you the Gemara Lushen and the English word for that particular part of the body. And he would explain to you how the body works internally, how this leads to that, and the food travels here and that, and this one does this thing, and this one has this this thing that it, that it gives off that affects the food. And he, he would describe the entire life of that animal in his description as he took apart the animal. And then he did something which we never saw before, definitely never saw before. He, 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 I don't think he did it so many times publicly, but I saw it, I believe I saw it twice. I know I saw the, him dissecting twice. I'm not sure that he did the, the, the nikr, the deveining of the Gid Hanosha twice. But I did see him devein a deed in Usher. Now, I personally don't know anything about meat other than I've watched Rabbi Heinemann and Rabbi Belsky and some other people 
Mr. Rabashkin from Rabashkin in Borough Park. I've seen people do what he called travering, divining. I actually, my great-grandfather did it in Europe. He took out the Gid Hanosha. That was his job. My grandfather was a butcher in Manhattan. He provided the meat for Luigi Siegels. He was, uh, you know, it was in the family, although by my time, we weren't involved in meat at all. But the point is, with a lost art, and some people know how to do it. They do it in Israel in some places, very few, mostly Sephardim. And there are some Sephardic groups that train people to take out the Gid Hanosha. Now, let's get a little bit straight about what we're talking about. We have an animal, right? There's a Gid Hanosha in the, in the thigh, in the, the, the sinew. It's called the, 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 the sciatic nerve, whatever. It's a certain... Uh, it's a very sh- small thing. It's not more than a lot of, not more than four inches is the main part, but it probably is, it stands out further than that. This, this, it, 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 the extensions traveling further, you have to take more out. It's only on that thigh, Yaakov Avinu, uh, fighting with the Malach. The Malach got him over there, and Al Kain Lo Yochlu. B'nai Yisrael is Gidanosha. We no longer eat the Gidanosha because of that whole. Remember that whole. Uh, situation with the Malach of Avesov that he fought with that night. But the Gid Hanosha is not so easy. And that's when I saw that when you cut up a, uh, a leg, a thigh, and you go in to get the Gid Hanosha out, you first of all have to know just what you're doing. Now you can't just pull it out because if you pull it, it's going to break and then you didn't accomplish anything, you lost it, and you're going to look for it. It's very, very hard. And if you do a, a, a poor job, you're going to leave a piece of meat that's destroyed. You're chopping away at it. You have to know just where to, when to move left, when to move right, when to go forwards, where, where you reach the end of it. You've got to know it like the back of your hand. Now, in the world today, Almost all the people working in the, I hate to tell everybody this, but almost all the people working in the meat factories are not Jewish. We have mashkichim, we have Jews doing certain work. We have mashkichim who are stationed in areas where they can observe everything before, during, afterwards, check over things. Yes, we have a setup, and the setup has gotten better and better and better, and I think it's very good now, the setup. We don't have all Jewish workers and all religious workers. We have to use non-Jewish people too. So now we're, we're setting up a system. We're going to go after taking out the Gidonosha. But it's a tough job. And it's, it can easily be messed up and you wouldn't know. You're not going to check every piece and then check the Gidonosha, see if he took a big enough piece, if maybe he lost part of it in the bottom and he didn't take it out. And it's hard to examine the meat to see if he got it that far. He got, uh, did he get that, this out? Is that the Gidonosh or not? It takes a lot of Yerushimayim, a lot of expertise, and it's slow. And for these reasons, it wasn't really advisable for us to continue it in America because we had one plus in America that they didn't have in Europe. We had Goyim. Baruch Hashem, we have plenty of goyim, and the goyim would buy our meat from the back, 
for the hindquarter, so we didn't have to pachka with it. So it's true. We didn't have filet mignon. We didn't have T-bone steak. We didn't have some of the fancier cuts that they had and maybe the softer meats and whatever it is that was in the hindquarter. That's true. But we gave it up because we wanted to make sure that we really had kosher. That's what we were doing all these years in America. We still do it. But in Israel, because it's not forbidden to eat from the hindquarter, so some some of the Sephardim, not too many, but there's still you can find meat in Israel that is from the from the hindquarter. And uh, but the regular hashkachas don't use it. In America, it was never done. In 2011, a gentleman, also a rabbi, also in Kashrus, out in I don't want to say the city, so we'll mention the state. In the state of California, in 2011, he started a business where he owns the meat, he deveins the meat of the hindquarter, and he sells the cuts to you. And they go for, a filet, filet mignon goes for nearly $60 a pound. A full filet mignon of four pounds is over $200, maybe $220, $250, whatever it is, plus shipping. You know, and, and that's what he'll sell to you. And he, he does it. He gives the hashkoch on himself, and he, and he sells it. So that's what's going on there. And he's in a conscious agency. I just got a call about his conscious agency today, and I was really caught in how to respond. I hope I did a good job because it was very, very hard to, to, to answer that question. I was inside. I was very, uh, what can I say, I wasn't very happy about it. So that's, that's that Rabbi X. Now, Rabbi Y started this recently. I don't know when. And what's scary to me is the following. And this is what I discovered, and that's why I sent a lot of emails, and that's why I got involved in this, and that's why I wrote the article from putting in my magazine, and that's why I'm all in up, uproar, is because I found that a very well-known hashkacha that all of you know, and, mo- and almost every of you, you, everything they make you, you eat, they are giving hashkacha to a company that uses their meat and also owns a second company that has the meat that's from the hindquarter with the rabbi from New York. So the rabbi from New York certifies uh, this particular company, and the owner was an Israeli. He owns two companies. So this bothered me no end because I thought that even though they're two names, he owns both. <laughs> That's interesting because it's very easy for one to do little things that we're not supposed to do when we own two companies. And one of them has an acceptable ashkocha to everybody and one of them has ashkocha that most people wouldn't rush to. So we... Isn't that a little bit of an issue when one man owns both of those companies? And then you hope and pray that everything is being kept separate and no mixtures, etc. Plus the fact that people are going to get confused. They're going to confuse this man's business, which has this hashkacha, with this same man who owns a different company with a different hashkacha. So it, it lends itself to very... Uh, much misunderstanding, and therefore I wrote that conscious agency that I feel that they should try to 
uh, extricate themselves from this hashkacha. So that's uh, <laughs> that's where I went with this story, and I don't know if anybody uh, cares about what I just said, <laughs> but but this is this is important to me, and it 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 brings into my mind a very big issue. What generated all this? I'm convinced it's the people who wanted to spend money to get the best. That that was it. It's uh, the American problem, the American issue, that I have money, I'll give tzedakah, but I'm going to enjoy myself, which is nothing wrong with that. But I have to enjoy myself in a uh, in a way that you know shows that I have money. Extravaganza. Yeah, and 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 I want I want people to you know to to think of me to know me that I have that money. There are people today who can spend money that I've, I you would be shocked. Well, of course we know about that. What they spend in the houses today that never was done. People had a simple house on the outside. Inside they could make it nice. They didn't put their money in the house. They put their money in the bank and they did other things with it. Maybe they did tzedakah, maybe they, whatever they did, maybe they just bought something else. But the houses looked like everybody else. Didn't make, it didn't stick out. They drove a regular car, they sit next to you in shul. But in today's world, we have people who have to have better because they have the money. They got to show it to themselves and to their friends. When they go, when they go to serve uh, schnapps, at a kiddish, it's two hundred and fifty dollars a bottle at least. They, when they, they they can't do things like other people do, that's a problem. That generated that this. That's my theory. I could be wrong, but that's my theory that that generated this man to say, "I'm going to bring in stuff like this and charge these kind of prices, so that those people who have to have it will have it." So in 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 and uh, well, let's not blame these people who, who give us and who do it. Maybe they're doing it, you know, because they're pressured into it. I don't know. Maybe they're doing because of demand. But there's got to be a demand. There's got to be demand for ridiculously high priced meats, ridiculously to to go into an area which is is easily leading you into questionable areas of nikur of divining. Now I didn't even mention, but I might as well mention now that when you devein meat, you have to take out what we call chela of the forbidden fats, which is suet, what we call tallow. That's the fats that we're talking about. And you have to take out this gid in the thigh. When it comes to venison, deer, there's no chela. There's no forbidden fats. There's no, there's no tallow. So therefore, there's no, that, that part of nikr doesn't have to be done. So that's why the one of the reasons why the OU went into it at that particular time, and they said, "Listen, we're not doing uh, changes so much the way it was. We're just doing this gidanosha." And Rabbi Belsky, who was an expert in it, was involved in training the people at the OU of how to remove the gidanosha. And I know he was an expert, and I know he was an expert in the animal. And I was—I've never ever seen somebody describe something the way he did when he took apart those animals. Every single drop of the animal he knew and everything he explained how the animal works, how its life is it li- lived. It's, it was an extraordinary 
uh, I mean, they probably have videos of it. There was an extraordinary experience to see it. So that's my theory that we should uh, distance ourselves from this product, these products that are from the uh, from the, the hindquarters, until such time as our cautious agencies that we know accept it. At that time, we can go back to it. There's no ban on it. Nobody's banning. No one said it was ever a ban on the hindquarters. It's not a ban on it, but it's sensibility, because the cost involved and the difficulty to monitor those two things, the removal of the fats, and the, uh, especially in certain parts of the animal, and uh, where it's very closely intertwined, it's very hard. Even the, even the Nikra that we do is terrible, terribly challenging. There's been big fights about it. The Spartan over here in Flatbush came out against a certain uh, 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 slaughterhouse and how they removed a certain, uh, certain chalev. And they didn't like the way it was done, and they had to make a, a, a different arrangement for the Svardim. So, yes, there are real uh, issues about taking off chalev, which we, we have to deal with anyway. But if you compound it by having much more chalev issues, and Nagida Nasha, which is very tricky, and having to have people watching it all the time, it's very, very, very challenging. And I just think uh, for anybody's sensibility, if you want to be safe, Stay away from those meats now. That, that's my theory. I didn't give you all the details. So, Rabbi, put in the magazine. I, want, I yeah. want to ask about re- this famous restaurant, all this uh, fancy uh, restaurant about who given the Ashgah over there? In those, what? Uh, this fancy where they, restaurant. Where they, where, they, where, they, where they have venison? Yeah, and venison. Probably OU. Yeah. OU gives Ashgah to, to the, the venison itself. Filet. That could be any, could be Kafke, could be any of them. Could be okay. But that doesn't know. Once you're doing the, no, the venison. Uh, that I'm referring to has what we call American standard of kashras, hashkach, O-U-O-K, kafke, starke, dots. Those are the ones that we, we're talking about that would do, let's say, the, if they, maybe they wouldn't all do it. Maybe only O-U would do it. But the, whatever it was, those venison, whether I like it or I don't like it, I know who the hashkach is behind it. But if somebody comes along and he says, I'm a Svartic rabbi, I went to Israel and took a course, and I can remove these veins, and I'm going to be able to oversee it. Now, the fellow, the fellow who does it and sells it from, and does it himself, I might like it. I don't like the idea personally, but I know he, the buck stops there. He did it, and he's certifying it. You don't like the idea, he certifies himself, neither do I. But at least I know he did it. The other rabbi lives in New York. And that's a different state entirely from where the production plant is, and it's a big production plant doing this, uh, doing this hindquarters in a different state completely. And he obviously is not there; he's relying on somebody else. So now we need a system. When we're dealing with a system, it's not the same as the man doing it himself. If, if let's say, let's say Rabbi Belsky was not here anymore, if Rabbi Belsky decided to do this. Take a regular meat and have, have it done. And he's doing it personally. I would eat it. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. But but if uh, but if you uh, if, you, if you're going on and taking people people who are going against the system and they're setting up something which is easily going to be led in a way that will be counterproductive to us, it could easily get out of hand. So I, I say stay away from this stuff until the real. Strong organizations, if they want to, take it on. So far, nobody's answered my emails. 
I want to tell you something. You're talking about this kind of uh, desire and need yeah. and will to get something specially. I know that one of the restaurants in, in the city uh, was offered to people giraffe meat. Right, giraffe. And uh, in the end, it fell down. But people were enthusiastic to get this. Of course. Because they can tell everybody That's that it. they ate it, yeah. whether they like it or they don't like it. But at least they could say, I ate giraffe meat. Yes. You know, so that's definitely uh, – okay, there are much more examples than giraffe meat. <laughs> I will tell you a story that I said I think here once before, uh, and, and it's, it's endless stories. So the, the trips of, uh, for Pesach are extraordinary. People go to whole islands that they have for themselves. I mean, this, they really – they get a whole island for Pesach, for their family. But I'm going to tell you a story that I heard from somebody in the shotness business right here in Flatbush. He told me that they get a lot of suits from Barney's. Of the suits in Barney's, when I was a kid growing up, Barney's was cheap. But in today's world, Barney's is expensive. The suits from Barney's are $3,000. Wow. And he's getting regularly, here in Flatbush, he's getting regularly deliveries, uh, usually send it over in, in expedited, sometimes with a cab. You know, like a, just a delivery man, whatever it is, they send over suits from Barney's to have the checking of the shotness. Uh, and he says almost every time he finds shotness, because in the, in the piece behind the behind the neck, they the, 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 to, to make it strong there, they invariably use the best stuff, which is linen, and he's constantly taking it out. And it costs a fortune of money. And sometimes he, sh- he he sews it up. Sometimes they have to sew it up elsewhere. It depends if they want him to sew it up. And it's it's a, like a, I don't know what the number is. Let's say he costs the, it costs let's say for that kind of thing maybe it's one hundred and fifty dollars. But on three thousand dollars, one hundred fifty dollars is nothing. So whatever it is, they're going through this constantly. So I said, who are these people? See, so he said a lot of these people are people who. Uh, once got the suit. Now, either they got the suit because they were in a world before they went to the yeshiva world, they were in a, in a world where they where that was the, what we do, or and they got used to it, or sometimes these people bought a suit from Barney's at, a, at what they call a, um, a thrift shop that had been used because it's a Barney's suit. They could show everybody, I got a Barney's suit, and it looks good. And they so they took it in, they had it shot and it's tested, and they got used to it, and they have to have it. So they'll save up, and they'll get themselves a $3,000 suit for Marnie's. Okay, that's, you know. But there are people who are doing this every day because they have to have the Barney's suit, the Barney's label. It works, it works the same as my suit. Okay, maybe it's a little fancier, etc., but it's a lot more expensive. But some people have to have it, and they have to have that trip, and they have to have that meat. And that's what created the the background. Because if no one's going to pay $60 a pound for meat, no one's going to pay for supper tonight $200 for two people or three people, then if they're not going to spend that money if cooking the food in their house, then it's not going to be there. And if, it's, and if the stores are not getting customers asking for it, they're not going to order it either. 
So it's obviously that there's a demand, whether this court, the demand is because of the availability or the availability because it's caught by the demand. I don't know, but I would, I would say the link is probably pretty close. And I would say that all of us should think whether or not we are doing the right thing in promoting such activities. And I, as I say, so I'm advising that you avoid this, these meets, uh, and you'll see them occasionally, not so much, but you'll see them occasionally, and they'll make a big deal about it, and I say, we could skip it. A woman called me up today about Ashka. Right. A woman called me up today about a product, and I told her I don't think she should be using it. So she said, well, should I throw it out? I said, that's a good idea. I said, any money you spend, the time my baby taught, any money you spend for a mitzvah, you didn't lose it. You didn't lose it at all. You're going to get it in this world. You get it in the next world. Don't worry. If you're spending it because of a mitzvah, don't worry. If there's somebody non-Jewish you want to give something to, fine. That's nothing else. That's a different story. Let me go on to the last topic, which I see we don't have much time, although I don't know if we're going to have that much to say about it, but it's a very interesting thing. This is this fellow, Raphael Newman, Rabbi, I suppose he's a rabbi, he doesn't put his name as rabbi, but I'll assume he's a rabbi. It's 216 pages, all in Hebrew, called Hilchos Shaduchim. I think, I'm not sure that's the name of the book. Could be that's not the name of the book. Uh, that's the section that I took, because I didn't, I didn't want to schlep the whole thing here and pull out 216 pages out of the computer, so I just took his Hilchos Shaduchim, which is a part of it, from page 7 to page 43. Now, a lot of what he talks about in there, oh, by the way, what is in the book? I'll give you an idea. He's got everybody who ever talked about Shaduchim. He's got all the Makairis. He's got every big guttle, whatever they said. It's a very interesting thing, and this is discussion is good. Put it in nice, organized form. It's our first draft, I think, or it's a main, it's a, it's a later draft, but he's, gonna, he's not finished with the book yet. Anyway, this section is called Hilchus Shaduchim. So I was interested in seeing what's in Hilchus Shaduchim. Uh, you know, and obviously the answer is <laughs> Hilchus Shaduchim. You know and I know that one of the things that uh, that, that made it into Hilchus Shaduchim is about paying the Shadchan. That's a big, a big topic there. When do you pay the Shadchan? Uh, who has to pay the Shadchan? Uh, you know, uh, what about if things don't work out? What's the achrayas of the shadchan? You know, there's a lot of issues uh, back and forth, but that's not my interest at all. There was one thing, and I couldn't find it when I came to the office here today. I couldn't find it. It's in here somewhere. But he does talk in here about when you're having issues of deciding what to do, you know, who do you go to? And I, I found that very interesting, but I have to look for it again because it's, it's somehow lost in the papers here. Basically, what he's talking about over there is when you ask your this person or that person, when do you, when do you have to get a, a advice? You know, some of what are what are things that you're worried about? Or are they realistic? So a lot of that he talks in here too. But what there are things that I found which I think all of us could benefit from. Now, in if if you have an interest, it's not no get to shuduchim for yourself. But the question is, should we? How do we as individuals involve ourselves with shuduchim? First of all, should we get involved in Shaduchim? Should, should people try to get involved or try to stay away from? 
since so there are issues here, you could be saying Lashon Hara, you could be Motzi Shemra, you could be hurting somebody, you could be messing somebody the rest of their lives. If you say yes, if you say no, you know, where, what are you supposed to be doing? Should you try to be a Shantchen? You know, those are some of the topics that he takes up, and I, th- I found it very interesting. But let's just m- mention a few points because we don't have much time. And by the way, the sources are great. So one, the first question, is it a mitzvah to make a shidduch? Well, the Medrash says, Matrina Sholos Rabbi Yosi Bar Chalafta. Amarle, the Kama Yamim Barah Kaddish Baruch Hu How long did it take Tashem to create the world? Amarle, took six days. So he says, Amarle, Mahu Oseh, Miyosa Shov, Yadaksha, what's Hashem doing in this world since the creation? Amarle, Kaddish Baruch Yosheh, Mizaveh Zivigugim. He says that Hashem is a shatran. You know, he, he was the creator of the world, and now he's a shatran. So uh, that's obviously, you know, if, if we're supposed to be comparing ourselves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and trying to copy his ways, it's a wonderful thing. Look at, the, look at a man who has a big family, married for many years, he's celebrating his, one uh, of the advanced wedding anniversaries, his 50th, his 75th, Whatever it is, and he has uh, uh, hundreds of, of of children and grandchildren, great grandchildren. You think it's you think I'm exaggerating? There's a woman who passed away who had two thousand great grandchildren and great greats, whatever they were. Two thousand. Okay, she was in Williamsburg, started off a little ahead of the rest of us, but she but she still and still in all did hit that number, and I spoke to the family members, and they told me the numbers were authoritative. So as as funny as it sounds, the numbers. But yes, a person could be, could be before he passed from this world, could have actually literally hundreds of, uh, of progeny, you know, from direct and indirect altogether, no question about it. So he's celebrating this, and he's, and, and they make him feel like a, a zillion dollars, they don't serve dear, but he feels that they're dear to him and he's dear to them. So he, he's very high. And then you question whether or not you should make a shidduch? What are you talking about? In my family, there was the old fool. I told the story, I think, once, but I hope I didn't tell it more than once. There was a person in our family who was the old fool. What, what do you mean he was the old fool? He got married at 50 years old. So in those days, you live till if you live till sixty or sixty-five, that was unbelievable. Many people died before sixty. They died in their fifties. They died in their forties. They had heart attacks like crazy. They didn't know why. You know, not over those days. And he got married at fifty. They said, "You're an old fool. You can't have kids. How long are you going to live?" What are you bothering yourself to, to live with a woman and uh, to worry about this? And you know, you have to learn a whole new life. You know, Shana Rishana, fine, but you, you're going to have a lot of getting used to. But he was the old fool. And she, of course, likewise, I suppose. They lived together for 35 years. He passed away at 85. They were married for 35 years. Of course, there's no children. The man and the wife in my family, that was the symbol of happiness, the two people. They were like young married couple all those 35 years. I never saw in my life a, a husband and wife 
as happy with each other as they were. So who's the old fool? So when you ask the question, should be involved in Shaduchim? The question is, how can you do anything else? <laughs> how could you not want to get these people to be happy all those years? I had two people over my house in Shabbos who were single, and they were telling me how difficult it is to be single and how much they wanted to be married. You have a question about you being involved in Shaduchim? Well, I'm not the type. <laughs> How did you get married? Somebody helped you probably along the way too. So obviously it's a very big mitzvah. But you have to do it right. And and he discusses in the book, you know, what what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. And and the big questions that come up are about when they ask you questions, what are you allowed to say? And he discusses at length beautiful thing about how uh when somebody you ask the per, the young man or the young woman what about this shidduch? You want to go further? Mm, I don't think so. No, I'm not going to go further. Uh, you want to tell me why? person really is in a dangerous area to say that. Because I'll be that the person who went out with the shidduch should not say very much. Of course, if they, if they, you know, if you've discovered that they that they have uh, some secret thing that the people didn't know about, and and then and, and it might be hard to find out another way, maybe this, so you can ask a shaila. But in the average situation, you shouldn't say very much at all. So the question isn't even appropriate, unless you're trying to find out to gauge: is this in the ballpark? You know, did I basically do okay? You need something that's a little more. To, in your mindset, you know, what area should I be stressing? It can be vague about it, maybe, but you've got to be very, very careful because you're going to be talking in the Lush and Horror and, you, and, you, and you'll be hurting the people's chances for the future. The person says to you, you know what he said? You know what he did? So, I mean, if it's something that's got to be reported to the police, you go to the police, you know, whatever, whatever you have to do. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about you didn't like something, so, you know, maybe the next person will. And you don't want to kill it for somebody. One of the most interesting things about Shaduchim is how many people who went out with somebody afterwards recommended that person to their friend and they got married. There's so many shaduchim where the shadchanim were the people that either rejected the other one or were rejected by him or her. So that that's the way to be. And I have a close friend who uh, went out with a girl, and he went out with a lot of girls, and he said, you know, it's not going. So he said to himself, let me make a list of those people that I went out with, and let me see if I shouldn't give them a try again. So he made the list, and he married the first girl on the list, which is obviously he said no to before because he opened himself up to it. People really have to try a little bit to open themselves up. As I explained to these two young people who came to my house on Shabbos, I said to them, you know, we're our worst enemies. We are the fighting each ourselves because we don't let ourselves get married. You want to get married, want to be married, but... A lot of times you don't let yourself get married. Anyway, I'm not going to go into those things. But let me just mention a few things from the book. Uh, he brings a chazonish. That, that you cannot do anything. 
Whatever you want to do, you could try to want to do, you could try to do the best you can, but you cannot do anything. By our doing some X, which we do, you know, you walk down the street, you open a book, you, whatever you're doing, make a telephone call, whatever you're doing, you control that much. So, you, you know, that it is, gets Hashem Yisbarach upstairs interested in helping you. We can only be in, uh, making HaKadosh Baruch Hu interested in helping us, opening up the Shari Rachamim, the, the gates of mercy from Hashem. Our deeds prepare for that which is going to come from Hashem. And he says, yes, making the telephone call is important. This is important. That's important. But the davening is the most important factor. The davening is the most important factor. There's a, there's a very chash of a yid in Eretz Israel where everybody goes to for advice. And he told somebody, he said, the main thing is the Tehillim. That's it. The main thing is the Tehillim. Nothing else is better than that. And the Chazanish says that the Tefillah is more important than your Hishtadlis. Now, Reb Chaim Kanievsky said, the Afshin Nigza al Adam miyis ares viyis chatein. Hashem Yisbaruch decides, as we mentioned before, who you're going to marry. The time they will get married has not been, has not in Shemayim. The Kan Limdanu Maran, so we see from the Reb Chaim Kanieski, Shadover Kvan Nigzar, Mikomakom Toil Tefiloso, Shiagia Maher Yoser. So even though Hashem decided when the person, before the person was born, who's going to get married to, very nice, but the time is going to be dependent upon you. So you could dive into Hashem and he could rush it up. So, you know, I'm not getting into the whole thing that Nasi talks about, whether you should get married, at, the guy should go out at 21 and the girl should be married by 18. I'm not going to those, the number game, not playing the numbers game, but still in all, rather uh, 20-something rather than 40-something. So definitely you want to rush things up. So yes, our tefillah helps that Hashem should take care of things now so that we can enjoy more of those years that we're talking about, people are enjoying and packing in some more family that's going to, progeny that's going to come from them so that they can be able to accomplish more and more and more in this world. These are a few of the ideas of what he has in the book. Uh, I don't have the time to read very much. just want to mention another one or two ideas. Rebel Yoshev says, Mutal shakir a little bit about the age. That's one of the famous questions. Aval al rav of Shlomo Zaman Orbach chal isa muchlet l'shakir. So Rebel Yoshev was a little liberal in fudging about the birth date. And uh, Rav Shlomo Zalman said, you got to be straight. Afilu b'tsura kalabiyose, even a, a slight variation is inappropriate. However, he says, rak b'mikrim ma'od mesuyamim nitan lahatir l'shakir odos hagil v'tsarach l'kabel psak nekudasi l'chol mikra. So he's saying that there may be, there's some movement here 
but you have to get a psak from a rabbi, whether you're allowed to lie. Some people go and they tell me all the time, oh, just add a few more years, take a few years off, I'm sorry, take a few years off because everybody does, and you can't, eh, come on, everybody does. Everybody does. Well, this safer discusses who said what, what it was, and, 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 and you're directed in a good light. I just want to mention about that, and then I'll finish off. Um, this book, it's not published. It doesn't. It, you can't buy in the store. It's not finished yet. But it's 216 pages, tremendous sources. Anybody can read Hebrew would love it. Um, and it's good, for, as I said, for anybody, whether you're in the Shidduchim game for the being looking for a Shidduch or helping people with Shidduchim or just you're interested in the topic. There's no dollars. Just send me an email, kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com, and write on the top, write, write Shidduchim. Just as a, we don't even have to say your name or anything. Just send me an email, and we'll send it back to that address. Again, kashrus at AOL.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. And uh, the email should just say Shidduchim in it. And if you're interested in seeing the man's website, I went there and I thought it was very interesting because he's got some very good ideas for people there. It's called yismach.com, Y-I-S-M-A-C-H.com. And uh, the charge for that website is zero. No dollars, no cents, nothing. What they do is basically move you into Shadchanim, and those Shadchanim... Uh, have uh, you know you're going to give them some when they make a shidduch you have to pay them something, but but they basically are having shadchanim work for you, so it's really a, uh, a wonderful uh, site. But there's also good things to read on there, and if you have a chance to see this, you might in, you should enjoy it very much. And in Kashrus magazine, you'll see the full story about what I was talking about earlier. The question of the, um, the the question of this meat from the hindquarters, and the magazine now is in production for the September issue. It's a good time to get into the magazine. If you haven't ever seen it, you can go to our website kashrusmagazine dot com, or you can call us and get some information at seven one eight three three six eight five four four seven one eight three three six eight five four four or shoot us an email at kashrus at aol.com k-a-s-h-r-u-s at aol.com and just uh, tell us your interest in about the magazine the details we'll be able to get you a very a special and we, you have this kosher supervision guide we have the kosher travel guide we have five issues during the course of the year of the magazine itself with all the information that you need to know about being a kosher uh, consumer so thank you very much for listening. Until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine.